It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, bankrolled by Unibet Poker. I'm David Lappin, alongside Darrow Kearney. Probably the most successful bad reg in Irish poker history. Isn't that right, Matt Staples? This week we are joined by the reigning WCOOP main event champion Stephen Van Zedelhoff and former online beast turned Wall Street trader Dan Squee451 Sherman. Ian will bring us a heap of live results from Barcelona Killarney, the Unibet Poker Belgian Poker Championships and the Unibet Deep Stack Open in Malta. He'll also bring us a report from the Unibet Online series. Speaking of which, Dara and I will analyse a hand that he played on the last US main event final table. But first... Fuck GTO. Well, I'm guessing by now a lot of people have watched former guest Charlie Carroll's YouTube video where he breaks down what game theory optimal is, well, he sort of does, as it relates to poker, and then explains why it's not the best route to poker success. His reasons? Well, he kind of gives a couple. One, it is far less profitable in the vast, vast majority of games to an exploitative approach. And two, it stuns a poker player's development by stifling his or her creativity. Well, we talk a lot on the show about GTO lines. We introduce PO Solver solutions to some of our strategy chats. Don't forget that when used correctly, PO Solver is also an amazing tool for playing exploitatively. But anyway, game theory is a beautiful thing in my view. Balance is always elegant. GTO principles are important just as deviating from them can be important too. There have been a few responses already to Charlie, my favorite being that of former guest Barney Boatman. He said, listen, I've been shouting fuck GTO at the pigeons in the park for ages. All Charlie Carroll does is make some brilliantly articulate, balanced and illuminating argument and suddenly everyone is interested, except the pigeons. Well, no doubt Charlie articulates his argument pretty well, but is it a balanced argument and is he right, Dara? To me, this kind of reminds me of a few years ago when Mason Melmuth more or less came out with fuck the mental game. And his sort of basis was, look, if you learn how to play poker properly, you don't need to be funny about all that mental game stuff and worrying about your own performance. And not unsurprisingly, there was kickback from people saying that, yeah, while it's important to know poker technically, the mental game, the mind game aspect of it is important too. I think Charlie's kind of coming from the other aspect where he's more or less suggesting that the mental game and knowing your own mind and developing your own style of play based on your own mind is more important than understanding good technical principles. So yeah, I'm definitely not in agreement with that. Yeah, in the piece, Charlie says that it's a guessing game or or sort of how playing with this exploitative and thereby exploitable style puts you in a sort of guessing game and it's one where you strive to be better at guessing than your opponent. Is it as simple as that, though? Yeah, I guess this is what we used to call leveling wars. And you don't hear that phrase too much for very more now because as the GTO people always point out, if you stick to game theory principles, then leveling doesn't come into it. And anybody who tries to level will actually end up being exploited themselves. Charlie uses the example of rock, paper, scissors. And you know the game theory optimal solution for rock, paper, scissors is, is very simple. You just choose each of the three options uh, one third of the time at random. If you start choosing any one of them more often, then you can be exploited. For example, if you start choosing rock half the time, then your opponents can start choosing paper more often and they'll win the game that way. So the problem with deviating from game theory is that you can end up being exploited. Now, you can deviate if you're up against somebody who, for example, always chooses paper then it's pretty obvious that you shouldn't be randomizing. But in the real world, there are not too many people like that. Poker is a bit more tricky because, first of all, we don't know the game theory optimal solution for most poker situations. It's really only sort of short-stacked pre-flop situations and fairly clear-cut river situations that we have exact game theory optimal solutions for. But to take the example of pre-flop, like years ago, people used to say, if it's folded around to you on the button, shove any two cards for 10 big blinds, and that's the way to play. Now, 
when people started calling wider, those players quickly started losing money and they had to basically retreat to game theory optimal. So exploitative lines will work up to the point where the tendency that you're trying to exploit is being exhibited by the other players. But if they stop exhibiting that, not only will you stop exploiting them, but they can start exploiting you. And I think if you look through the annals of poker history, you'll see lots of players who appear to crush for a few years. And that's because they had a particular style, which did crush uh, in that case. Some very aggressive players used to overbluff rivers. And this was in a time when people used to fold too much. Now people start calling them and suddenly they're big losing players and they disappear from the game. Yeah, I think that's really well broken down. And another point that Charlie makes is he insists that learning through GTO is detrimental to an up-and-coming player. I guess this is the point he makes most adamantly. You coach plenty of players, Dara. I've coached plenty in the past. And I think you would view GTO principles as fundamental, just as I always did. I think it kind of depends on the level of players you're playing with. I mean, if you're playing really, really weak players and they have very clearly definable, exploitable tendencies, then Charlie's completely right. And for example, when we both started playing live, most Irish live players had some very clearly exploitable tendencies. For one thing, they tended to overbluff in almost every spot if you didn't show aggression. And the way you exploited that was just by having a really tight style. You never tried to bluff them and you just call them down a lot. And a few of us did very well for years on that situation. Now live players are much more nuanced and they don't just bluff in every spot when checked to. So it really kind of just comes down to the level of the opposition. And I mean, I think in some ways to say that game theory optimal is boring and dry and, and uncreative is actually to do with a disservice. And a lot of the time exploitative play is actually very uncreative. I mean, if your only decision process is, oh, he checked to me, therefore I should bluff. There's nothing particularly creative about that. You're choosing to always bluff. Whereas the game theory optimal solution to that case would be to think about his range, to think about the hands that we're trying to get to fold, and then think about the type of hands that we want to have that don't block those hands. Um, and they're the hands that we choose to bluff with. So it's actually quite a creative process in itself. Yeah, I'd have to agree there. Having looked through P.O. Solver solutions for hundreds of hands now at this point, sometimes you get presented with a really elegant, really beautiful option that never occurred to you that really does exhibit what we would call as humans creativity. I guess a computer is sort of using brute force calculations to work out a best possible line in that scenario. But, you know, when viewed through the human lens, it is absolutely a thing of beauty. I think Charlie's argument ultimately boils down to a sort of bias he has for maybe the experimental and improvisational. I always think that like poker is a science, sure, and an art form, sure. And there's no doubt Charlie is an artist in that realm. He definitely understands logic. He definitely has good mathematical faculties, but he certainly excels in what is a sort of a cat and mouse game. I've been there at the table with him and it's, it's very clear that he enjoys the moments he gets where he's one-on-one with you as a player and he gets to try and perceive your weakness or figure out what the best way to exploit you would be. I'm reminded here of a goalkeeper. I guess this is maybe a version of the rock, paper, scissors. I guess a goalie in a very simplistic way has three choices if he's going to be game theory optimal to dive left, right or stay in the middle. In that sense, I always think of Charlie as maybe being the goalkeeper who hangs from the crossbar and jumps up and down his line and goads the penalty taker as he's coming up and then watches until the last possible minute to get whatever body language he can ascertain from the striker before he hits it, that sort of thing. Yeah, for me, it's almost a redrawing of the lines. Like when we started playing poker, there was always this debate between field players and math players, as they were called. And field players just kind of did what they felt was right. And that this was the idea that they had this incredible intuition and they knew what to do in every spot. And math players were the guys who went off and actually worked out the mathematics underlying things. That used to be a debate which raged in poker years ago. It doesn't rage anymore because there is absolutely no doubt that the math players won in the long term. A lot of the so-called field players were players who just ran well for a while or happened to have a style that exploited the current tendencies but 
once those population tendencies changed, they weren't able to change and they disappeared. But I think a lot of the same arguments now underpin the whole exploitative versus GTO thing, where players don't like to feel that there is a correct way to play and they like to feel that there's an infinite number of possibilities and it's a field which rewards creativity. So you are kind of getting this opposition to GTO, let's say. Yeah, I get what you're saying there. I guess the one point that I felt Charlie made sort of the most aggressively, if you like, was the one about teaching people using GTO principles as stifling. That just seemed wrong to me. It seemed maybe a little bit unfair on the guys who take a more mathematical or more PO solver style approach to the game where they're trying to genuinely figure out interesting lines, balanced lines, trying to make themselves not exploitable. I would also push back on the idea that it's kind of more stifling or more rigid to be GTO. Like pre the introduction of game theory principles to poker, for example, a lot of the principles that we were taught were things like you should always see better. You should see better than 100% of the time. Now, there's nothing particularly creative about that. And there's nothing strategically complex about that. It's just if you are the preflop raiser, go ahead and bet. Now that we have solvers and people understand that it's very easy to exploit someone who's c-betting 100%. Now we have to start thinking about all the situations in which we c-bet, which hands we c-bet and which hands we don't and why. And there's actually a much greater level of complexity to that than just, oh, I raised preflops, so therefore I have to bet. Absolutely. Well, look, there's no doubt that the exploited route has brought Charlie tremendous success. So why wouldn't he champion it, I guess? But to say fuck GTO, even in a clickbaity sort of way, I do feel is disingenuous. The complicated, perhaps impossible journey towards GTO is a noble one being traversed by many pros. And the knowledge gained, I think, on that journey can also contribute to a recipe for success. Totally, yeah. We're joined now by a man with over 4 million in online earnings and a pretty sick resume that includes wins in the Sunday Million, Super Tuesday, multiple binks of the Sunday 500 and a scoop title. In 2014, however, he packed it all in to take up a job in a Wall Street trading firm better known as Squee451. He is Adam Sherman. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, glad to be here, guys. Hi, Adam. Well, Adam, before we get to your big career move, can you describe for our listeners maybe uh, your rise through the online poker ranks? Uh, yeah, so I started out kind of grinding sit and goes in tournaments back in geez, like 2006, 2007. Um, I was still in college at the time and not full time. Then when I graduated, I had a few months before my consulting job was supposed to start. And I moved in with a friend who was using Hold'em Manager and, you know, making six figures playing the 510, six max cash games. And uh, I started applying it to tournaments and the 22, 180-man sit-and-goes. And, and uh, it worked very well. And at that time, very few people were using the software and I got uh, quite good with it. And then I just had a really magical 2009 where I felt like I was one of the luckiest people online. If we roll on to May 2010, you had your biggest score uh, taken down at 3K scoop, 4 max for 210K. That, along with some other huge results, actually propelled you up to number three on Pocket Fives by September that year. I presume you were all in for poker by that stage. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that was the year I put the most work into my poker game. I was probably working 60 hours a week playing and studying another 10 to 20, really focusing on improving my game, analyzing my database, watching players like, uh, I guess it was like Giboro and occasionally like Mormon at the time, trying to figure out what they were doing that I wasn't doing. And yeah, in that 3K scoop, I actually played against Giboro, who not really around these days, but was the crusher of the online tables back then. I played in Formax for three or four hours, and it was a very challenging and enjoyable poker experience to be able to play with your idol for so long and end up winning the tournament. 
Yeah, incredible stuff. Well, I guess the big question and, and sort of the theme of this piece in a way, uh, when and why did you decide to transition away from poker? And to what degree was Black Friday in April 2011 a factor? Well, right after Black Friday, I knew I wanted to be playing. It happened right before that scoop that year, and I obviously wanted to come back after my last year's scoop. And so I moved to Argentina for three years, and it definitely played a factor that I wasn't able to work from my home country. I really enjoyed living in Argentina, though. I picked up Spanish, and it's actually kind of propelled me to my current uh, career living in a a more developing country and kind of seeing how the government works in different places. uh, It was really fascinating. So after maybe four years, five years of playing full-time, I just was not um, as dedicated to poker as I needed to be. And I had kind of reached the goals I had set for myself when I became an online poker player, how much money I wanted to save and what I had wanted poker to do. And once it became you know, clear that I wasn't going to be working as hard as everyone else, uh, it seemed like it would be a good time to kind of... Uh, yeah, hang up the mouse and uh, find something else to do. I talked to some former poker players who became traders, and they all spoke very enthusiastically about it. And the similarities were, were quite striking, and it was uh, that was also a lot of fun. So I guess when it came to doing the transition, you started initially by talking to other people. To what degree do you think the skills poker taught you helped you become a trader? I think to a very large degree. Trading is one of the few places you can have a 5-10 year poker career or get in. A lot of places consider that a gap in your resume, and uh, a lot of hedge funds and trading firms do not. They consider that you're learning valuable risk management skills and being able to make you know high value decisions for lots of money in low periods of time. Like that's something they're uh, looking to do. And even with the rise of kind of you know uh, automated trading, computer trading, there's almost always you know a human person right next to the trading and looking at how it's going and adjusting it quickly when things change rapidly and eventually able to uh, yeah use the skills that you learn as a poker player to adjust to new market situations. Is there any specific advice you'd give for poker players now who say would like to become traders? I mean, it's really a lot of math skills. Like you need to be kind of good at brain teasers and you need to be good at kind of fast math. If you're a very intuitive poker player as opposed to a stats-based one, that's probably um, going to be tougher to become a trader. If you have computer programming skills at all and you kind of build those out, you know, they're looking for a lot of people who can do programming and have some idea how game theory works and Nash equilibrium works, so that, that definitely helps. Usually you have to have a college degree. It's hard to get around that. Yeah, I guess it's going to move more and more towards the kind of computerized grading, I would guess, in the next five to ten years. So, I mean, building up a computer programming skill set would probably be the most helpful thing you could do. And it's something that's doable online if you put effort into it or if you want to spend some money and go to a boot camp. There are some people who learned uh, programming from that way after not doing any of it in college and are now programming successfully. And would you even go as far as to say that the fact that you picked up the hood very early on, you mentioned it there earlier, is that sort of application that you immediately saw the value of the hood and looked to use it really well, is that transferable or is it just the willingness to adapt, as you say, to the changing market surroundings that, you know, you spotted that this would be something that would really help and give you a leg up? Um, I think it was definitely helpful, the fact that I like used the HUD and programmed notes for Poker Tracker, that kind of you know automated note-taking skills. And then when 
I was working with the program they were using for the kind of electronic market making, which is the kind of trading we did. I was able to look for, you know, small changes that could give me a lot more information and help me be a better trader and work with the programmers who were doing that. So I definitely think working with the HUD and changing it helped me work with the future software I was dealing with and trying to say, okay, this is the kind of analysis I wanted to do similar to with the HUD, you know, being able to break trades down similar to how you break hands down. Color coding for fishy stocks. Yeah, I have hours more energy options, but yeah, kind of try to figure out exactly what what happened when trades went bad and what happened when trades went good, and how much of that was in your control versus some market changing information just coming out and making a trade go huge one way. Well, Adam, a lot of players leave poker because they go broke, so it is really nice to hear a story of somebody leaving the game with money in the bank and another career aspiration. I'm interested, though, to know that when you look back on your poker years, do you see them as wasted years? I'm guessing you don't. Uh, Are you nostalgic for the time, maybe with your computer in Argentina or back home, and maybe it was a simpler time, or maybe it's something that you ever have a hankering for? It's definitely something I have a hankering for. This year I played the least poker that I have. Well, when I was a trader, I didn't play really, but I played full-time last year in the United States, and this year I really took a lot of time off. But when I was traveling, I traveled through Southeast Asia, and I was hankering to play poker on Sundays. I was excited to go play the Sunday Million and some scoops, and it was, uh, you know, I miss it sometimes, but after doing it for a while, like after the World Series, two weeks is almost all I can take of that. I'm just ready to go. (laughs) I cannot, uh, cannot, cannot make live poker the same. It's just... It's a different skill set, too. Some people are just so good at live poker. Um, and it was so obvious to me that I'm missing so much value that weaker players are getting live that I, I probably shouldn't. And you can make so much money grinding online in June with all the guys gone. A lot of good reasons not to play the World Series in my book. I'm sure I'll always keep it as a hobby. But I never could have been the best because like, I was always concerned about the going broke factor. I didn't want to be back full time. But I've always stuck pretty strict bankroll management and when i took a hit and after black friday i dropped it down and i sold action to the highest stuff and for me bankroll management was very important like i had an amount i wanted to make off poker every year and i didn't want you know i didn't want it to be super swingy making high six maybe a seven figure year and then losing six figure year and do you think young players now should be looking to transition out of poker sooner rather than later or is the number of years out of the conventional labor market not that major an issue It really depends on what they want to do next. I feel there's a lot of jobs they can transition into. You know, anytime you leave and start a new career, you know, the more time you get in your new career, the further you'll go. So I guess if you want to leave younger, your new career will come along. If you have a very unique shot in poker, so I met an Indian player who said that poker's really regulated there and there's a lot of really rich businessmen. So if you can play these super high stakes cash games in the cities against these guys, you should do that for, you know, 12 months, a year, two years. And then once you have some money, you can go leave and do whatever you want. But you can take that kind of shot uh, when it's there and it seems to be free money doing it now it seems a lot harder though yeah yeah picking up on that i do have a couple of friends who left the game over the last few years one of them left a couple of years ago and one more recently and they both struggled they said that employers would look at in one case it was a 10-year gap in his employment and be like uh, what the fuck you know uh, what prison were you in <laughs> well it does kind of look that way in a sense and i suppose maybe for the guy you don't necessarily want to bring up that you're doing poker you know in some job applications I'm, I'm guessing in some walks of life you just feel like it was automatically a negative and would go against you so it's interesting obviously as you pointed out going into trading that world see it completely different yeah i mean i definitely think it depends on the uh the employer i mean so 
Uh, yeah, I went to this Life After Poker meetup in Vegas where maybe 30, 40 poker players showed up and kind of discussed what they either had been doing post-quitting poker or what they were looking to do. And there were some people who were getting their PhDs, and they said it was kind of very much frowned upon in the academic world. That poker playing is just kind of, yeah, degenerate gambling. Yeah. Whereas in, yeah, as in the hedge fund world, it's kind of viewed as, you know, you're enterprising, you're making your own money. I mean, if you have good results and a lot of statistical analysis under your belt from poker, it's obviously going to be very helpful. And then we just got into people who had gone to the, you know, crypto world, who were starting their own hedge fund, um, people who were starting their own other businesses, teaching chess and poker on the side, that kind of stuff, mm. people in the nonprofit realm. So, I mean, you can transfer over. You have to have a story for your kind of poker career and be able to present it very well in, in the best light possible. Adam, you attended the recent WSOP and you were at one of my tables briefly. You actually delivered one of my favorite lines of the summer when you said that if hell had a capital, it would be Vegas, an entire city based, <laughs> to not, based on not, people not understanding maths. Uh, you described yourself as a recreational player these days. Do you think you'll go on playing poker as a hobby for the rest of your life? Yeah, I definitely do. I like the friends I've made from poker. I'm involved with Pokar, which is uh, an online stable that you'll probably probably have seen at the tables yeah and i love uh being in that group and working with those guys i'll attend coaching sessions and watch their videos and meeting up with them at the world series was a lot of fun and i can't imagine just leaving it for the rest of my life you know every six months if i haven't played in a while i'll definitely get a hankering i'm sure during graduate school there'll be at least a sunday or two where i load up the u.s sites online and grind a sunday out yeah, well, fingers crossed the marketplace there in the US opens up properly again. Obviously, there's some hints towards that in the last maybe few months. I don't know if you've heard the same things I have just about some more territories opening up. It would be great to see America back online. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They just recently allowed sports gambling. The Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on sports betting. So we'll see if that translates to um, online poker. That would be very interesting. Obviously, going back to grad school and not wanting to spend all my time playing poker wouldn't be the best time for me. But I definitely have some friends who would get back into it. And I'd find it hard to resist at least playing Sundays. Yeah, well, they lumped poker in with gambling when it suited them. So it would be a shame if they didn't lump it in now. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see what ends up happening along those fronts. Well, before we go, Adam, your Twitter bio says your interests are poker, crypto, politics, finance, effective altruism, philosophy, and comedy. It also tells us not to take your tweets too seriously, so I, I won't do that. But it is said that a, a goal in life is to make your interest your job. I guess that's maybe a route to a happy life. You've made poker and finance your job. Any of the others on the list you'd like to turn to next for your next profession? Yeah, well, I'm very interested in effective altruism. Being a poker player and working in finance, I didn't really feel like I did much for the world, unfortunately. It's an all a zero-sum game, whatever I made, somebody else is losing. But the organizations that I was able to give to, I mean, I like reg a lot and I like give well and give directly. There are some very uh, effective organizations where for, you know, a few thousand dollars, you can really save somebody's life, which is pretty crazy. Um, and now I'm going back to uh, get my master's in uh, development economics and possibly go on to my PhD after that. Um, I'm really interested in the uh, intersection of blockchain technology and uh, development finance, in particular, the potential to bring down costs in the remittance industry, where sending $200 from you know the U.S. to the Philippines or London to the Philippines can cost up to seven, between 7 and like 15 to 30 percent based on the change rates. So I, I think that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have the potential to drastically reduce these costs and really uh, get a piece of the market. So, I mean, I'm interested in 
hoping I can turn something between crypto and effective altruism to help some people. Well, that's totally fascinating. Adam, Life After Poker was the theme. The games are certainly softer out there, thanks to the likes of you, Online Beastsquee, 451, moving on to, I hope, greener pastures. So on behalf of the poker community, thank you for not playing anymore full-time. Thank you. I, although I've mostly been a donator in recent days. So well, geez, thank you doubly. <laughs> <laughs> well, great to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello everyone, welcome back to the news. First of all, let's look at the Unibet Belgian Poker Championships. They've been and gone and another successful festival was run by Kenny Hallett. We saw Christopher de Müller win the main event for 38,000 euros. Sarah Van Camfort beat our very own diver Burn heads up in a very successful ladies event. Congratulations to the winner and congratulations to our diver for organizing another fantastic ladies tournament. Over to the EPT in Barcelona, our eventual winner was Piotr Nozinski, who took home 1.6 million euros. Shoutouts to well-known Irish players Patrick Clark and Mark Buckley, who got 8th and 7th respectively for 155k and 220k. Excellent results from those two. John Jawanda also got 9th in the EPT main event. Congratulations there. Yeah, ridiculous run there by Joanda, who of course won that event only a couple of years ago. But I have to say all eyes were on Bucko and Clicky as they made their chase for the top prize. Bucko, I thought, played superbly there to get seventh place. I think he got the guts of a quarter million and Clicky probably got, you know, the guts of 200k there. Two huge bankroll boosters, I'm sure, for the two boys. But such a shame we couldn't see them on the final day. We were all rooting for that. And then, of course, you mentioned there the Belgian Poker Championships. I actually had the pleasure of going to Blankenberg for this one. Again, I reiterate, fair play to Diva on her ladies' event, 43 runners, as I recall. And yeah, congrats to Christoph, who I actually played with for much of day one and two. Uh, he played very well, of course. I didn't see much of the final table. I was off enjoying my day off at that point. But no doubt he played very well and was a deserving winner. Yeah, happy days. Moving on to another event you recently played there, David. Uh, the Unibet DSO Malta has just finished. German player Oliver Weichardt won for €20,000 top prize. Uh, how did you find this festival? Yeah, really enjoyable. I was really pleased to see Clint Samus take second place. Probably one of the best local players here in Malta. A really good personality, great guy. I know he's very disappointed to get second, but shout out to Clint there on an excellent second place for 12k. Moving over to Kalani, Pesh De Silva and Dara Arcani had another heads-up clash at this festival in the 2K Hyroland. Unfortunately for our hero, Dara did manage to come second, but the 20,000 euros he picked up is sure to keep him in high spirits. Yeah, Dara, of course, famously came second to Pesh, going for a bracelet about three years ago at the World Series. He was a big chip deficit that time around. I think he went into heads up maybe 10 or 11 to 1. So it was a bit of a Hail Mary from that point onwards. This time around, Dara got there with, I think he had pretty much even stacked three-handed. But then I think Pesh took out the guy in second. So Dara was sort of 2 to 1 dog and, and didn't manage to overcome his ace-queen loss to Pesh's ace-jack all in pre, which would have got him right back in it and maybe in the box seat to take down uh, high roller title but unfortunately not for Dara also we have some breaking news the main event has only just finished and I can reveal now the winner was Colin Gillen he took home 175 grand not too shabby John McGill from Dublin took second in this one for 110k so not too shabby there either yeah excellent result there very much congratulations uh, shout outs of course to Sean Hegarty who managed to get third in this event and David Blaine who got a very respectable fifth 
Yeah, fair play to the boys there. I'm, I'm sure both very happy with their performances and, of course, enjoying that juicy overlay that was uh, provided in Killarney. Over to the online felt. The Unibet online series is almost finished at time of recording. Now, this is the braggy played... bit now. Here comes the braggy bit. It's not a fucking brag. I've played every day for two weeks. Do you know where I am in the leaderboard? 437th. Close. Close. <laughs> I've had an absolute nightmare of a series. I've been grinding so damn hard. In other tournaments, I've been doing just fine. I know, I've noticed you actually having a pretty uh, nice run of things on the online felt these last few weeks, but nothing in the US is obviously. Jesus, it's been so heartbreaking. All I know is the only time I played all the events I won it, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, a little bit of uh, positive though. The final tournaments haven't finished because they are two-day events, and I've made day two. For the 25 euro 15k guaranteed and a midday two of the 100k guaranteed main event i also want to give a big shout out now to our good pal and twitch moderator donna morton who's also still in the us 100k main event she's one of the short stacks she tells me but she is hanging on in there donna's gonna do it i can feel it that would be amazing i have to say i think i'm rooting for donna just a little bit more than i'm rooting for you I'm rooting for Donna more than I'm rooting for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Ian, I know it was more of a jam-packed results fest this week and not so much news, but looking forward to hearing from you next week, maybe getting a, an update on the US results and some other news from around the poker globe. Hopefully I'll be bragging. That's the plan. Good stuff. Excellent. Thanks very much, Paul. Catch you later. <laughs> For a strategy segment this week, we will be looking at a key hand from Dara's now famous Unibet Online series main event run, a run that sadly ended with them coming third. The theme of the hand is what to do when all the options seem bad. Well, Dara, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, this hand came up when we were three-handed. I was the chip leader. The other two guys had about the same stack. They weren't massively shorter than me, but I had a decent chip lead. The button folded, which he was doing quite a lot. Uh, he wasn't particularly aggro on the button. Uh, so this situation had come up quite a lot, three-handed. And usually in this spot, the small blind was raising a small amount, just under two and a half big blinds, which I don't think is a particularly good strategy because I'm not going to fold anything to that sizing and position. All he's essentially doing is bloating the pot um, when I'm in position. So I'm going to call a lot. This time, unfortunately, though I have a hand pocket threes, um, which doesn't play great as a call, so I just I just shoved all in because he had just over 20 big blinds effective. And for me, it was a, a fairly clear shove. But afterwards, interestingly, in the chat, uh, people thought I'd lost my mind. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to pick up on is your excellent point about your opponent's opening size. I actually had the privilege of railing this one virtually uh, through Twitch and uh, was watching sort of every hand play, I guess, effectively. And the biggest observation I made, and I remember saying it out loud, was that it was a big mistake from this guy. To, maybe I shouldn't have said it just in case he was listening, but it was a big mistake from this guy to continue to do this kind of 2.3x open because it really achieved nothing. If he 3.5x and folded some hands, he'd be defining his hands and he'd be making a genuine stab at taking down the blinds and antis. But by doing this one, he was, as you said, just bloating pots. Uh, creating situations where you were probably going to have to call with what like 85% of your range there and now you're going to have position which obviously allows you to take it away when both players miss an awful lot the second thing I want to say is that uh, yeah it, you did get a bit of stick for this one and, and I was also bemused by that stick but it it spoke to how I guess you had a lot of rail birds for this one who were maybe from the lower stakes and this was a play that they wouldn't have been used to seeing 
Yeah, I think to to address your your, your first point, if the opponent had been raising a larger amount, I would have had a much more difficult time playing against it. But against this amount, I can call almost any hand profitably, um, and then I can choose some hands to raise as well. Um, also, because his frequency is so high, uh, I know he's doing super wide, so that makes it uh, profitable to three bet him pretty wide. Yeah, so in this spot, I have specifically pocket threes. Um, so like if I have a hand like 9-5 off, I'm just going to call and try and hit a pair and not worry too much if I don't hit a pair about folding. But pocket threes has, has actually a lot of decent equity. So if we go through what the options are here, I mean, I could fold. I could just call like I've been doing most of the time. I could raise, you know, a normal amount and then decide what to do uh, if he shoves, um, or I can shove myself. So folding for me is clearly out of the question. Any pocket pair is 220 to one preflop to be dealt. So you know you're going to get dealt aces one time in 221, kings and so on. There are only 11 better hands than pocket threes um, and the guys aren't going to have them less than half percent of the time so each of those hands so that means that when you have pocket threes you have the best hand 95 percent of the time if you're going to fold a hand that's the best time 95 percent of the time three-handed you're not going to do very well because the the blinds of empties are going to race around and eat you up so folding is clearly out of the question so the next thing i guess we can look at is calling the problem with calling is that my opponent is opening a super wide range pocket threes actually plays very well as a flat when the stacks are deep and you're up against a tight range because you have a very simple post-flop strategy which is just uh if you hit your set go with it no no set no bet essentially but you can't do that when the range is wide because if i'm just going to fold when i'm uh every time i miss my set i'll usually be folding the best hand in the flop as well because you know my opponent normally starts with two unpaired cards two times out of three he doesn't hit a pair in the flop so I'm still going to have the best hand. On the other hand, if, if I start calling downward pocket threes, it's a real dark tunnel spot. Uh, I mean, if the run out is something like 10, 8, 6, queen, 8, are we really going to feel great about calling with threes all the way? So because threes play so badly as a post-flop, that makes it a much worse call pre-flop. So now we have to look at the other two options. The first option is to make a normal raise. If I make a normal raise and he four bets, uh, which will be a shove, I'll now have to decide whether to call. And I think in this spot, folding would be a mistake because we're, we'll be getting a two to one on the call, uh, assuming he uses a normal sizing, and we're still going to have the best hand most of the time. So we're going to have to call, but we're calling it off with a low pair. The problem with that particular strategy is that if he has a hand like Jack 10, when we raise, he decides he'll shove and try and get us to fold, or he has a hand like ace four or there's a wide variety of hands that we're just 50 50 against uh, that we're we're getting all the chips in with but he would actually fold if we shoved on him first um, and we 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 win 100 percent of the time so because of all that the shove even though it seems rash and obviously people say well you're on, you, you, you you you're in bad shape when you're called which you know yes you're up against a bigger pair uh, some of the time, but most of the time you're actually just up against two overcards and you're flipping. And even when you're up against a bigger pair, you know, you're going to get there roughly 18% of the time. So that's why the, the, the shove is clearly the best option as far as I was concerned. It's not that it's a brilliant option, but it's, but it's less bad than all the other options. Yeah, it seems to me that the fold equity is the biggest sort of component in the hand the fact that you will make this shove and get a lot of folds is where you get back those chips f 
to sort of pay you back for the unusual, but also it happens sometimes occasions when he does wake up with an overpairing hole. Yeah, I think this spot illustrates that people often think incorrectly about hands. They they have sort of like rough rules in their head of like, I want to get in this amount of big blinds with this hand. I'll, I'm happy enough to get in 15 big blinds with pocket sevens. I, 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 only, I don't want to get in more than 10 big blinds with pocket threes and so on, rather than just thinking through all the options and, and, and weighing up what the pluses and minuses are. And look, when people say that this is a very rash shot because you, you're in terrible shape, in my experience, a lot of amateur players will, will say that. And when I coach them, that's one of the hardest things I've sometimes find to coach into them, that when they're up against a wide range and they have a small pair and the effective stacks are 25 big blinds or less, the best play is just to shove all in. And they just think it's really rash. But yet these same players, let's say they they have ace-10 and the board comes 10 high with two hearts and they put their opponent on a, on a, on a flush draw. They'll have no problem shoving the 20 big blinds in after the flop to, to invert commas, protect their hand. But it's kind of the same spot because you're trying to fold out the flush draw. And if it has overcards as well, it, it is roughly 50-50 equity. It's a similar spot with the threes. When we get something like jack-10 to fold, that's actually a big win because it is 50% equity as well. When we run into a hand, I mean, that sucks, but when players run into a hand post-flop in those spots, they tend to find it easier to just write it off as a cooler. They'll say, oh, he had a set, how unlucky was that? Whereas when they run into an overpair pre-flop, they think, oh, well, maybe I was a bit rash shoving my, um, my my small pair. And in actually, and in actual fact, you're obviously in much better shape with an underpair pre-flop than you are with one pair against a set post-flop. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, and I think it really helps most players to redefine hands at certain stages of their development. And I guess this is one where they can maybe start looking at small pairs, seeing where the equity of those hands are, where the spots where they're valuable are. And I guess this is one where maybe previously a lot of players uh, wouldn't have realized uh, how this was the, the most profitable route. Um, and certainly the, the way to realize your equity in the hand, uh, as you said, if you call and take sort of murkier post-flop lines, you risk getting exploited in a variety of ways. You risk folding the best hand, you risk calling with the worst hand. Yeah, I think really the, the lesson to be learned from this one is understanding the value of a hand like a small pair in this situation. And really, you played it as I think most pros would. And I think it's uh, it's something for other people to have a little think about. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're joined now by the reigning WCOOP main event champion. He's also a Sunday warm-up winner and the 2009 Spanish Poker Tour Grand Finale champion. He is a beast on the real and virtual felt who has recently crossed the 10 million mark for combined live and online winnings. I also suspect that he is the inspiration for the strength emoji. He is, of course, Stephen Van Zedelhoff. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi, Stephen. Well, Stephen, you've been playing for... I think 15 years, I hope I'm right in saying that, and I want to chat about the ups and downs throughout your career, but I have to start with last year's WCOOP main event title, what a performance. How have you enjoyed your year as the champ, and now with the benefit of a little bit of perspective exactly one year on, what does the result mean to you? Uh, Yeah, that was a crazy one. Obviously, the run good was there, uh, otherwise you don't win a tournament like that, but it's, uh, it's definitely been a result that confirmed my belief that some very good things are possible if you uh, if you work hard for it so yeah that's amazing i don't know life has been a bit better uh, than before because you you feel a bit happier about being able to do something great like that and even more motivated to, to do more stuff like that and 
in terms of identity, yeah. Now, all of a sudden, I can call myself a world champ. Should I? I don't know. I mean, I do. Uh, but it doesn't make me a better person or it doesn't guarantee happiness or more success. You just have to work equally hard for that. But it feels like uh, you have something in your bag now that nobody's going to take. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's very nice. Well, as David said there, you've been playing since the start of the 2000s, which is actually well before either of us started. How different was the grind back then? And did you have any early breakthroughs? Uh, yeah, in the intro, we missed, I think, well, after the W Coupe, I can't say that anymore, but uh, we missed my most influential victory, which was the Sunday Million, in 2007, and that really changed something. Kind of like with the W Coupe now, but now it's bigger. But that happened back then as well. Like, I was grinding for like probably five years. I think I started playing poker in, well, around 2000. Not super successful, always just like fiddling around a bit, like not a very positive, strong learning mindset. Um, so for years, sometimes I won a bit, sometimes, well, I didn't, so yeah, whatever. And then in 07, it kind of all changed when I won the Sunday Million, uh, which allowed me, that's obviously a huge bankroll boost, uh, and it allowed me to put more time and, and dedication to poker. Uh, and then slowly things started changing. Still, still my mindset had uh, quite a lot of work uh, to be done, uh, which only happened like for the last five years, I would say. But it at least allowed me to become more serious about wanting to be a poker pro, like really trying to aim for big things. And then afterwards I got sponsored by, uh, by one of our beautiful uh, <laughs> websites that allowed me to travel more and whatever. And then you get a lot of motivation into the, the poker life and you know what you do it for. So yeah, from there on I uh, managed to keep building. Well, yeah, it would be easy to look at your career through a wide lens and see it as a meteoric rise. Of course, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned your Sunday Million win, of course. Uh, shame on me for missing that out in the intro. But I do know it hasn't been all plain sailing. Do you mind sharing some of the struggles you've had, particularly in the middle of your career and how you overcame them? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a big thing for me. Like, I'm very much into mental game. Most people know that. Like, and that definitely has to do with this fact that I had to struggle like a lot. And well, it's a cliche. They say struggle is is good for people, and I definitely feel that too. Like the times that I was successful early on didn't necessarily bring me a lot of good stuff. Like winning the Sunday Million, it sounds amazing, and it was amazing. Like in hindsight, I'm I'm very happy it happened. But not necessarily because it put me in the right mindset and it actually spoiled my, my learning mindset and it spoiled my learning process. So that's why like five years after I was still not very good. And as a matter of fact, I was going through quite a rough period. And to just blame that on the government because they took my money, that, that would be way too easy. Like, yeah. obviously it felt horrible. But I mean, it was not like super out of line. They wanted some money, some tax money. Okay, and I want a lot of money. So yeah, then I had to give away all my money. Okay, that, that sounds like horrible. But in another way, like the reason I was not super happy, the reason I was not super successful is obviously because my learning process sucked and my mindset sucked. And yeah, the first years after uh, my money was taken, my mindset only got worse because you feel like you fucked up and yeah, the world is, uh, <laughs> the world is bad, you know, like not necessarily that I was, I was like super negative or whatever, like uh, my life has been too good to be that negative. But it could have been way stronger in terms of trying to keep moving forward. And that only came to me like after I started working with Jared, Jared Tendler. As soon as I got my hands on his book, The Mental Game of Poker, like it literally only cost me like five pages or whatever. And I knew this was it. This was going to be the big change because it just sounded like exactly what I needed to 
get my learning process moving again to get my my positive mindset like back or I think I never really had it like you have a learning mindset or not that that just is a lot of knowledge that's uh, in your head properly and I did never really have that and after I started reading the book like I knew it okay this is it I'm gonna work my ass off and it's gonna cost me years of like baby steps I knew it all straight away uh, but I'm I'm gonna uh, be able to change my career with this and that's exactly what happened. I started doing a lot of coaching with him and started working very uh, intensely on my mental game. And then, yeah, slowly but surely, things started to get better. Yeah, but that's very interesting. And when it comes to dance swings, poker players obviously respond to losing in a variety of different ways. And you obviously responded very positively, treating it as a learning experience. I've written in my blog before how it takes me 12 minutes to shake off a bust. Uh, and you really don't want to talk to me uh, before those 12 minutes are up. <laughs> when, when David plays live, he's even worse. Uh, I also wrote a blog from Newcastle where um, after he busted a 100 quid tournament he was unbearably nasty for hours afterwards does that really have to come up like on every second podcast interview yeah um and after every hand he loses online he screams a string of expletives at his computer <laughs> this is true i've done that for sure like now it's okay but uh, yeah i think i heard an interview with you where you said that you used to punch yourself in the face every time you made a bad play did that work um no it's pretty much the not low mindset obviously like and it also shows like how fucked up my learning process was. If this is literally the last thing you can come up with to try to shape your behavior into not doing the stuff you don't want, wow, then you've sunk really deep. And well, I know I was very deep in there. Like for a couple of years, I must have been like super close to quitting poker because when you're not successful, like it's also not really fun. Well, the thing is, I, I'm very grateful for that. Like I, I come from a nest uh, that doesn't give up easily or like a family of hard workers uh, so to say and I can really say I was not very talented in poker because to be talented at poker you need to be talented at learning basically and I, I was always smart like I had a good brain like in terms of raw math power or whatever but in terms of learning I lacked a lot of knowledge I think I, I can see now so yeah that's why I was not really talented to improve quickly in poker so I always had to keep working very hard even for for the last five years like I have to put in a lot of effort into learning which is fine I mean we all have our own ways of learning but yeah that was one of the ways I came up with just smack yourself in the face and your system will <laughs> really 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 not want that again so it will stay away from making those mistakes and that's exactly what happens and we all know uh, after having done years of study on this that you stop learning that way and you really become really defensive and in pain and your system even before making the mistake starts to feel the pain of making the mistake again so this i only found out through the book of jared this is what i realized like a couple hours after i read that chapter it's a chapter on fear of failure and this is literally that like your system becomes afraid of experimenting and, and progressing because you can only progress by learning from your mistakes and this i never realized but this is something that we call in dutch foul angst and that's a really negative word like it's it sounds like very cowardly like negative and afraid and scared like as mm. if you're not strong enough and if you're not man enough so i really 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 wanted to stay far away from that word yeah i think that's a great way of looking at things that to be successful in book you have to be successful at learning i don't think i've ever heard someone say it exactly like that before but that that makes sense um i was chatting with your good friend kenny hallert at the weekend and he described how you both did pretty well at the start i guess or for quite a while and then something stagnated with your development he said that you both had some tough times but they were followed by an aha moment with the exception of what you mentioned about Jared and his book, was there any other eureka moment? 
Yeah, well, technically, the hero is a very important one that you actually want to bluff with your worst hands at one point. That was a very important one. Like, okay. <laughs> and it sounds silly, but that took me like 10 years to find out. That on the river, for example, I was still not bluffing with my worst hands, like the ones that didn't have like uh, any other value. And you can feel really stupid for that. That just means that my brain is not the most brilliant in coming up with things on its own, which is fine. You just have to adapt to that. So you just have to keep looking at uh, smarter brains and learn from them. And if you keep doing that, like with a lot of effort and love for the game, then you can still learn a lot of good things. So And, and now, last couple of years, I noticed that my brain actually gets more creative and actually does come up with solutions like a smart brain. It all, again, it comes down to mindset, I guess. But that's a technical one. Um, Mindset-wise, vulnerability, I already touched on it. Like, if you can be vulnerable, if you don't see that being vulnerable is actually strong, then you keep thinking that being vulnerable is actually weak and you're afraid to be seen as weak. So you will stay away from your vulnerabilities. And this, again, uh, will prevent you from actually developing, not only in, in poker, but also in life. Like to get to overcome your weaknesses, you have to be vulnerable, basically. That's also a very big insight that allowed me to progress a lot in life. Yeah, obviously Jared's influence was a huge one on you. And in March 2013, you came fifth in the Sunday Million for 52,000. And in the same year, in November, you won the warm up for 80K. Was that the period when it felt like it was turning around? Yeah, definitely. That was kind of the first year, first two years after I started being coached more because again i was more vulnerable i could admit that i was not very good anymore so you can get more coaching technically my learning mindset allowed me to put in a lot more repetition for myself uh, stuff like that so yeah then i started building like a process like a system of improving in poker reviewing a lot of hands calculating a lot of hands so yeah that that exact period is i think my first good run after like years of not being able to do anything so yeah, that's a very good motivation, of course. If you start to feel like, hey, it's starting to work, then yeah, you will keep going. Absolutely. Well, it's continued to work. One way of showing that is that you're currently the number one ranked online player in Malta. No mean feat to <laughs> consider all the top class grinders out here. What motivated your decision to move to Malta? I know you've been here for about eight or nine years. Yeah, I could say now the nice weather and the friendly people and stuff like that. But it also had to do with the tax climate because here we, we can be a bit more free in, in how we handle tax. And I do pay tax, but in the Netherlands back then it was just unworkable for what I wanted to do. Like everybody's different, but I chose for an environment where I could go really full power and not have to worry too much anymore about mm. the tax stuff. Because yeah, it's uh, one of the, the traumas in my financial uh, career to put it that way. And besides that, yeah, we liked it here and it is indeed a great friendly atmosphere. Yeah, you touched on your issues with the taxman there. We're currently in the process of preparing a piece for next week's show on tax and the current situation with Spain and some German-based players. Any thoughts on what could or should be done differently either by the Netherlands or in general? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm literally out of the Netherlands for like eight years and I try not to follow it too much anymore. So I honestly don't even know exactly where they are now in terms of taxes. Sometimes I see a report or there is like a, a jury that ruled something or whatever, but I'm not on the point of uh, going back. Also, I don't know exactly uh, what the perfect solution would be. Like, obviously, it would be nice for me if I could just pay like 20% of my net winnings uh, and I could middle over the years and expenses and buy-ins and stuff like that. Then, yeah, it's fine. Like, if it's reasonable, it's, it's reasonable. Is that reasonable or should I pay more or I, I don't know? I don't know. Uh, 
I don't have the definite answer there, but for now I'm, uh, I'm good here. And uh, it's a goal to travel more in a couple of years. I want to ask you about diet and exercise. When people ask me for advice on this subject, I generally recommend against muscle building program and instead focus on stamina and endurance training, similar to what I did as an ultra runner, because I think that kind of translates best to playing long sessions. But you've obviously gone a different route. You lift weights, you intermittently fast. I think I'm right in saying you were vegan for a while, but obviously it seems like it works out for you. Could you talk us through your diet and fitness routine? Yeah, I do feel that the body actually likes having uh, quite a bit of muscle. I've had a lot of back problems uh, all through my life, probably uh, by abusing it, by using it wrong. And for the last years, five years or whatever, like I lift like relatively heavy, not absurd. I try not to go into absurd mode, like my character sometimes uh, pushes me <laughs> to, to the more extreme things. I tried to stay away there. I've been vegan like pretty hardcore for a couple of years. Uh, that feels quite far away now. I try to be flexible and I try to give my body what it wants. And yeah, it seems to be extremely happy by doing the fasting and then simultaneously lifting. It kind of enables me for the first time to build the body that I've always wanted, but that I could never do. Like I've been quite fat or chubby all my life and unhappy with that and not able to change that. And now literally for the last half year, my body is just uh, transitioning into something that I find to be looking very good. And I mean, I'm not the only one. Uh, I don't have to brag to say that other people think uh, that I look good. I just, I never looked really in shape and now I'm starting to look in shape and that's really, really awesome. I'm sitting right in front of you now and I can, I can, I can verify that you look pretty good. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, see, now we're finally you're, you're, the same. You're, you're wearing one of those nice vests with the muscle showing off and I'm sitting here in a sort of fat boy t-shirt, so... <laughs> No, I mean, I'm not here to brag. That's not, that's not. You've made me feel bad enough, Stephen. Don't, don't, please don't continue. (laughs) No, I'm very grateful, actually. I'm, I'm super surprised by how I've allowed my body to, to move from something that I didn't like and that I couldn't change to actually be able to change that. And of course, we, we spoke a lot about mindset stuff already. This also has to do with mindset, with like believing in stuff and by not letting yourself be limited by certain beliefs. And that's something I've become very good at, of course. But still, the the fasting was kind of the thing that inspired this. Like, for the first time in my life, I've been okay with not eating. I've been okay with not cramping, like, calories into my system. Like, with experiencing that I can work without having had food for, like, 35 years. uh, years. (laughs) For 35 hours. I can sleep with an empty stomach. I can concentrate, I can go to the gym. Like that is a great experience for me. I was always very convinced that I needed a lot of calories and especially carbs. And now I find out that I don't really need that stuff to do well. Of course you do afterwards, (laughs) but that I do a lot. I eat a lot. It's not like I'm starving myself. You want to keep a lot of muscle, you want to be strong, you want to be happy, so you eat a lot, but just not always. And that's, that's a really big insight for me, yeah. The one thing that strikes me as a sort of common thread between all of those things, you mentioned Jared and you mentioned now the the fitness stuff and the diet stuff as well, is control. That control is a big constant through all of those things, that you're controlling what's going into your body, you're controlling the shape of your your body, maybe through exercise, and then also maybe controlling your mind and and keeping the the negative thoughts at bay and stuff. How much is control sort of the, the centerpiece of all of this? Um, yeah, you're you're right in that read. I think it's always been a, a trouble thing, like not having enough control, not having um, the control to to everything. And food is definitely a thing where I can uh, see that this was a thing because I've over controlled food for a long time as well. 
uh, even like being kind of anorectic and then losing all the fat because I thought that was going to make me happy and then you've lost all your fat and you're still well actually you're physically in pain now and you're still not very happy because it all comes down to like deeper deeper things that you think you have to do that to be worth success and love and happiness and stuff like that so you always try to control the stuff that will allow you to do that and food was one thing for me obviously because I, I wanted to control how I looked other things yeah control as well like in my learning process I can definitely see that I want to I want to control my progress I want to control my success I don't think if that's a control issue like I don't know I want something so yeah the, if you want to get somewhere you have to control the, the circumstances I guess like how am I gonna get somewhere in life if I don't control enough sure I feel like in poker though we're all a bit that way in the sense that we play a game that is utterly chaotic when it comes down to the turn of a card and a big part of our destiny could rely on the turn of that card so we try and yeah, control all yeah. these other aspects yeah maybe it has to do with that more than I realize maybe because my brain is is trained for like what is it like 18 years into losing control like on the most important moments the moments yes. that seem to be the most important in terms of direct results maybe that that has done something with our our brain maybe that <laughs> played like uh, some dirty tricks it's possible i don't know for sure yeah i think we tend to respond in one or two ways so that we can either go to the point where we just think everything is chaotic and we just sort of develop a almost zen-like approach of whatever happens happens in in every area or then some people do try to focus very much on what they control like when i was doing the really long races one thing my coach used to say all the time was like don't ever think about your opposition don't think about what the weather will be on the day don't focus on anything that you can't control just focus on what your reaction to those things will be yeah yeah now that's a, that's a great advice of course one of the other breakthrough things was definitely meditation like mindfulness I started doing in the in the rough period because it allowed me to see that well I am not my thoughts of course <laughs> it seems so logic now it seems so simple now the concept but that was definitely a thing I was very bad at and uh, a big part of my unhappiness and my inability to to control a lot of situations was definitely because my thoughts were just like very wild and not always positive and, and not very helpful and if you don't realize that that's just thoughts and that you can actually still uh, have different behavior than those thoughts yeah that was an extremely big insight uh, in my most recent blog, I wrote about how my sort of natural characteristics make me a natural grinder, I think, in the sense that if I'm winning, I like to grind away and capitalize on the benefits of feeling like the wind's at my back and things are going well. Whereas if I'm losing, I like to try and put my head down and just grind through it, which I think that's probably one thing we both share. And this summer in Vegas, we booked to Jared, uh, we interviewed him for the ship race and very much took to heart his advice about just grinding through it when it's not going well. How is Jared's advice to you different when you're preparing to grind an online series rather than a live one? Yeah, online, a lot of my successes comes from actually being able to keep going back into learning, uh, especially when things are, are tough. Like uh, for a couple of years, I've literally not, not won a lot, but just studied a lot for like hours a day, hours a day, like in every possible way you can come up with. And that in the long run is uh, what is going to make you successful. But to be able to do that, you first need to be very much educated on how the learning process works, on literally how the brain works, how you can keep the positive mindset and how you can get the work done. Like simply like grinding calculators and, and discussing hands where you've obviously fucked up again. 
it's not fun. It's like very difficult if you don't have like the exact knowledge or conviction in your head that that is something that absolutely needs to be done. So in terms of just grinding away, like keep grinding, yes, definitely important, but also keep learning. Like that must be like the center of your grind. I, I kind of reshape my learning process that way that the playing poker is kind of the preparing of the lesson and the actual work, the thing that is actually going to make you successful uh, very often in years to come, like years away, that actually is the learning, the studying, the dedicated study uh, that you're doing after your session or if you're really uh, screwed up, like you, you're going to take a break and you come back an hour later or either you do it the next afternoon when you wake up. But there is like one or two hours of work to be done every day. And that's the study and it's not the grinding away. And that's a very big difference because a lot of people, they stay away from the pain and the pain is in seeing their mistakes and uh, doing the, the study grind. So they just keep grinding poker. So I don't know, yes, it's important to keep going, but not always just to keep playing more hands of poker. It's, that's kind of a trap. And obviously I fall in it myself too. Like I don't put in, in these weeks of WCOOP, I don't put in as much study. I think you could be forgiven during these weeks. There's not enough hours in the day. <sighs> Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I think that's great advice. A recurring theme on the show for many years has been bromances founded across the felt. Uh, Phil and Antonio, Finton and Spraggy, Porik and Jesse, Jamie and Kevin. I mentioned Belgian pro Kenny Hallert earlier. I think it's fair to say yourself and Kenny qualify. Uh, yep. <laughs> how did that friendship start and how important has it been to you on and off the felt over the years? Uh, I remember very clearly where I saw him the first time. I think he was selling tickets to some Belgian poker tournaments or whatever. Um, and it was in the casino in Amsterdam. And I, yeah, I thought he was a, a funny little man, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. And I, I still think he is. So, uh, yeah, yeah, obviously we go very well together. We have, uh, we share the same grinding mindset and the same love for poker. And besides that, we both have like a, a love for doing things efficiently or whatever. Like you can see it when we drive in the car where we like to take the most efficient route. We're both kind of nerdy. Well, obviously, can he uh, pro- <laughs> professionalize this uh, in spreadsheets? We're kind of nerdy in terms of spreadsheet and numbers. Uh, we bo- both love like Google Maps, you know, before we rent a house in Vegas, we're going to see where the pool is located, like at what side of the house, you know, we, we just zoom in on this, we're going to find out where the supermarkets are. We don't like to be surprised by that, so we have a good, uh, a good preparation um, in terms of mindset. So yeah, we have the same kind of uh, dry humor, I think, so um, yeah, and PokerWise obviously has been very important for my learning process as well, like we've talked a lot about hands, we have done a lot of calculations together, reviewing each other's hands, stuff like that. I think it's very important to have uh, a bunch of people around you, of course, like that. And uh, yeah, Kenny has definitely been one of my main sparring partners. Yeah, it's only recently I actually realized how funny Kenny is. He does have a really good dry sense of humor. He lap danced you in Bucharest recently. I couldn't believe my eyes. (laughs) That was one of the most surprising things that has happened to me in poker, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but uh, speaking of friends in poker, when you won the WCOOP main, uh, you'd sold and swapped quite a bit of action, much of it to friends. What was it like having to hand over all that loot? Uh, yeah, it was a it was a an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> it took me, I think, four or five hours to kind of overcome the. I would almost say the old mental leak of seeing it as like a total fuck up. Like it happened. Like and in terms of what you just said, like accept the circumstances, this was something I had to accept. And it also kind of fit my story 
that I get fucking up the, the kind of the wrong moments, like the, the, the big moments. But this is also what shapes you. So, and it always allowed me to come out stronger. You're referring here to the fact that you did have more swapped out than you realized or something of that nature. I guess as well, just the very act of piecing yourself out or swapping action of any amount. What was it like handing over that cash? Like, I imagine it's it's a nice feeling in one way to make some of your friends rich. It's not a nice feeling to maybe hand over that much money that was in your account moments earlier. Um, no, it doesn't feel like that. I'm, I'm used to swapping like all my career. I, I was already down with uh, swapping like a couple hundred thousand. So I, I gave away more than I got back. But the money I got back really enabled me a couple times to keep grinding. So I'm, I'm really convinced that swapping is good. I had sw- I had pieces from a couple WSOP main event final tables. So yeah, I, <laughs> I can definitely not complain. And the fact that I uh, gave away even more money than that in my life only tells us that I've been very fortunate in, sure. in getting big results. So yeah, other people having action of that is, is just uh, me being lucky still. I don't know, my mind my mind is really easy in that. Like I, I really can kick myself for making that mistake. I wanted to swap down to 30 and I forgot two of my biggest swaps. So I forgot a seven and a 5%. So that's why I ended up around 17%. If the math adds up. Anyway, I, I had 16.6% like of myself, which is, ridiculously low um, but I already was swapping down to 30% which is relatively low for a lot of people but that's simply because I just lost like 40k in the weeks before and I just didn't feel like playing a 5k for more than 1500 like 1500 buying is is fine like for a tournament like that sure um, but yeah then swapping down to like uh, 16 feels obviously really awkward that's a big mistake I found out I lost like $160,000 like that minute that I realized it it just brought back like so many old emotions from like fucking up at the big moments, the, the important moments and uh, the, like thoughts like, oh, here we go again or see, I, I can't do it or I, I will keep fucking up or whatever. And that was the day of the final table when I woke up. That's where I found out. And that I still had to overcome before I started playing. So yeah, I called Kenny, I called another friend, I I drove out here uh, on my bike um, just to get some fresh air, I talked to another friend here. Then when my emotions calmed down a bit, like, and I analyzed how I could have made that mistake or whatever, I talked to Jared, Uh, we put in like a Skype session in which he even allowed me to release some emotion or whatever and then I knew I was ready so I went to bed I took a nap like half an hour or whatever and I I woke up and I knew I was gonna win it Uh, and that was extremely important like and the fact that I allowed myself to overcome that even on the same day and do great that was an extremely strong learning opportunity so yeah it's, it's that combined with the victory, obviously, that made me feel very, very strong, actually. But the actual handing out the money is amazing. Like, that was great. I think I sent out, like, 1.3 million that week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with with a lot of fun. I would do it again. I mean, I hope I go into history as the guy who uh, who gave away, like, uh, 4 or 5 million. That means I'm going to make a lot of money with poker still, so... Absolutely. I remember hearing, I think it was on Joe Ingram's podcast, you saying that, the amount you won meant it keeps the chase alive. I think that was the phrase you used, that it wasn't so much that you could, as you say, get lazy or arrogant, yeah, yeah. but, it, but it, it was enough to make you very happy, but at the same time, keep you motivated. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely how I see it, yeah. I still have that chase, like that hunt. If I would be given 1.6 million now, maybe next week when I win the W Group main again, 
who knows? Then then things are probably going to change, and I'm probably going to grind less. Um, you would never see me again. Probably, I, I would vanish. You'd probably <laughs> never see me back on Malta. So yeah, no. But for now, I I actually feel this is what they say. Of course, it's a cliche. Uh, it's it's not about the the result. It's about the journey. You gotta like the journey, and I really, really, very much like the journey that I'm uh, I'm undergoing for the last couple of years. So yeah. That's a great attitude. Finally, Stephen, Kenny told me at the weekend, we were at the Unibet Belgian Poker Championships in Blankenburg, that he was both starting and contributing substantially to a GoFunded page to raise enough to get you to cut off your ponytail. <laughs> Can you tell him, and maybe our listeners as well, how much does he have to raise? I mean, they were kind of, as we say in Dutch, uh, throwing in my own glasses, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it's it's not cheap, I can say that. Like, I, I built this image of the, the Viking, now I'm building a bunch of muscle. Uh, so I really like, uh, maybe go to Ireland. You guys are from Dublin, right? Maybe maybe move to Ireland for a couple of months so I can play in the, in the series, in the Viking series, you know? Like, Absolutely, you would fit in perfectly. <laughs> give me a sword and just give me, give me a roll and I can scream hard. So yeah. Why would I give that away for free? Like, uh, good, good luck with the with the GoFundMe uh, page. Yeah. We'll there, you, there you go, Kenny. Now you're going to have to dig deep into those very substantial pockets. Uh, well, <laughs> Stephen Van Zedelhoff, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And the very best of luck with the grind in the upcoming weeks. Who knows? Maybe you go back to back. Thank you very much. I hope you're going to see uh, my name in the, the lists of results the next couple of weeks. Who knows? I'm going to do my very best. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Stephen. Well, I must confess I had a hard time picking a song for last week's show. As you will recall, we had John O'Croot on the show, and I've got to say, I'm not sure we've ever had a bigger response to a guest. In the end, I plumbed for If Six Was Nine from the Easy Rider soundtrack. My other choice was a track from Detroit, Michigan native Cito Rodriguez, so I'm going to play us out with that this week. From the 1971 album, Coming From Reality, this is Street Boy. Because your mind is always 
in the streets You better get yourself together Look for something better Street boy You've been out too long Street boy Each kind of sense to go home Street boy You're gonna end up alone You need some love and understanding Not that dead in life you're planning Street boy again to Dan and Stephen. Next week we'll be joined by Scottish pro Ludovic Gelich. Plus we'll be looking at the issue of taxes with Spanish pro and lawyer Pablo Rojas Martinez. Until then from Dara Ian and myself, good night and good luck. Music